Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Part of the, the thing about doing church during COVID is that you get your mic or your mask stuck to your mic, and then you're doing that. All right. We're good to go now. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning. My name's Aaron. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet, it's so good to have you with us this morning. If you can, if you have your Bible, I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Now, before we get into our text this morning, if you're a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, we have some folks over here to my left, Miss Trish and Mr. Jesse over here would love to hang out with you this morning. And as we're turning to Genesis 37, I just want to welcome you again this morning. Thank you for taking the time to join us. You guys braved the time change. We're here. Even though we lose an hour of sleep, it's good to see all of you. For those joining online, again, thank you for taking the time to tune in. We're going to be continuing on through our series through the Old Testament. We're in the book of Genesis. We're in like a year plus probably long series looking at the Old Testament, the scriptures that Jesus read. And this morning we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 37, the story of Joseph. Now, before we get into that passage in particular this morning, I want to start off by asking you all a question. How many of you like surprises? Raise your hand. Not a trick question. Like most of us. I love surprises. In fact, over at my house, we get a ton, I get a ton of surprises personally at our house. Usually it's, they come in the form of about 2 or 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> Usually I'm sound asleep and our four-year-old Kason, who just turned four by the way, comes up to, on my side of the bed, he's like the perfect height, where I'm laying down and his face will just be right there in front of me, eyes kind of halfway open, and usually the comment I get is, Dada, my blankies are all crumply. <laughs> it's, it's no monsters, it's no nightmares, it's the, blankie, the blankies are crumply. And surprise, there you go. You know, it's just, you know, part of being a dad. You know, surprises are awesome, right? Just depends, though. A few weeks ago, my parents came down and visited for the first time in 14 months. We didn't tell our kids. The kids opened the front door, and lo and behold, surprise. The, fa the look on their faces was absolutely priceless. It was awesome. But then, on the flip side, I think there's sometimes we're surprised in life by things that are less than fun, to put it like that. Perhaps it's the news that work is laying off 25% of the staff and your name's in the mix. And that's not the kind of surprise that we like. Or it's the surprise diagnosis from the doctor. Or it's the surprise, but maybe a better word for surprise is disappointment or sadness or pain or suffering. And as we kind of think about this, you know, I was reminded this past week, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, wrote a really honest and vulnerable piece in the Atlantic, and he was talking about, he's a pastor in New York City for decades, and he was talking about how he was first initially surprised by his cancer diagnosis, his pancreatic cancer diagnosis from a couple months ago. And he wrote about how, as a pastor for decades, that he would give pastoral care hours upon hours to people who are in the hospital rooms or at points of near death. And he comes to this place as he's writing this piece, and he basically says, I found myself on the, on the operating table. And I found myself wondering, would I be able to take my own advice? And just the honesty of that. And as we think about, you know, the story of Joseph, we're going to see that Joseph runs into a number of surprises that are less than pleasant, to kind of put it mildly. And as we think about the story of Joseph in our lives, one of the things that I want to simply talk about this morning is that in those surprises, 
the surprising thing is that God is actually still at work. That God's work is still happening even in those moments of shock and despair and in pain. And for this morning, there's really three kind of simple sections that we're going to go through here in Genesis 37 and a little bit further. And three main things I want to look at is that God's work is surprisingly messier, quieter, and longer. Messier, quieter, and longer. Now, it probably won't make for a great Christian bumper sticker, but may I suggest (laughs) that by the testimony of Scripture that God's work is still surprisingly powerful and at work in these times. So with that said, Genesis 37, starting in verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, or the same person as Jacob, Israel Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. Now, let's pause right there and let's do a little bit of family tree work, right? We've been going through the book of Genesis for a few weeks now, a few months actually, and it can sometimes be confusing to figure out like who's who in all of this. And so just to kind of start us off, let's start with kind of who's who in all this. Now, remember, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, we talked about Abraham. Abraham is the, is the grandfather of, jo- of Jacob. And so you might see the, the family tree behind me here. If you go all the way back to Abraham, just look at the figures in the orange there. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, he's the one who's given this promised blessing that through him and his family, they would be a blessing to the nations. And really from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through the rest of the book of Genesis and really through the rest of the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament and the rest of Scripture really traces this one family, the family of Abraham. Abraham, he then has a son, Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. That's the second figure in orange there. And there's a whole story with Isaac and Rebekah. And then Isaac and Rebekah have two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob eventually gets his name changed to Israel. We just read that here in our passage this morning. And if we go to the next slide, Jacob, he has a pretty big family himself. Now, Jacob, he had two wives and two mistresses, which just kind of think about that, would make for a very complex family dynamic, to put it mildly. And out of those four different, basically, sexual partners, Jacob had one favorite. He had two wives, Rachel and and Leah, and it's pronounced Leah, not Leah, like in Star Wars, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Rachel and Leah, Rachel was his favorite wife. And out of... Out of Rachel, Rachel had a son named Joseph, and Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Now, how this plays out is actually very complex and very messy. Take a look with me at the end of verse 3 and following. And he, Jacob, made him, that's Joseph, a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, there's a really important backstory to all of this. Jacob, remember, that's Joseph's father. Jacob himself grew up desperately lacking the love and affection of his own father, Isaac. See, Isaac, he had, again, like I said before, those two sons, Jacob and Esau. But Isaac, he played favorites too. Isaac favored Esau while his, mother, while his wife, Rebekah, favorited Jacob. And this seems to have messed with Jacob a little bit. The favoritism that Isaac was giving Esau seemed to have left Jacob in this state of not really having the affection and the love and the care 
that he so desperately needed. So the, when the point where he becomes a father, when Jacob becomes a father, he's perpetuating the same harm and the same favoritism in, to his own sons. He's favoring his son Joseph at the expense of the other brothers. And this causes huge relational dysfunction and huge hurt. How this plays out specifically is in verse 3 we read that Joseph is given this coat of many colors. You know, the text literally can be translated, it's this richly ornamented robe. It's this very valuable, prestigious, high-end fashion clothing that Joseph is, get, get, is given. It's like Joseph has his own sort of fancy clothing line, like a Joseph Armani clothes, and his brothers are just kind of wearing like the same basic boring outfit, like wearing a black t-shirt all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, this, this favoritism really seemed to harm this relationship between the brothers. The favoritism that started a generation or two ago seems to be trickling itself down and still causing more dysfunction. As one author put it, I read this week, family history has a way of retweeting itself. And we're seeing that at play here. But how do the brothers respond? Check a look at, take a look at verse 5 and following with me. Joseph seems to have some dreams, and let's look at the brothers' response too. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to him, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around, and it bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, I want to take a look at two really important things real quick. First, let's focus on Joseph, and then focus then, number two, on the brothers. First, Joseph. Joseph seems to kind of be in this spot where he's fairly arrogant, I think. He's coming to this spot where he's kind of bragging and sharing about this dream that he's been given. And it seems to put the, uh, at the attention, if you will, with the relationship with the brothers. And what's this dream all about? Well, it's kind of very simple. This dream is about that at some point in the, in the future, perhaps, that Joseph's going to be in a position of power and authority. And his older brothers are all going to be bowing down before him. Now, think about this. In a culture where all of the, the prestige and the honor and the blessing was given to the older sibling and the oldest of the siblings, this would have been completely offensive. This would have been a, a big no-no. And here Joseph not only has one dream, if you keep reading in verses 9 and 10, he has a second dream that he still shares with the brothers. And it's basically the same kind of idea where not only are the brothers bowing down before Joseph, but his mom and dad are bowing down before him. It's kind of like one of those moments where the text also says he's 17, so he's fairly young, right? Where you just kind of wonder, like, ah, does he have any, like, emotional intelligence? Does he kind of know, like, ah, there's some things, they might be true, but they're probably better left unsaid, right? Have you ever been in those situations with people where it's like, sure, that's true, maybe, but perhaps you should save that for a better time? But then, secondly, the brothers, as you were reading from verses 4 through 8, notice the response that the brothers have. Three times the text says that the brothers hated him. It's almost like the author is telling us that almost like a volcano that's about to erupt, the hate is multiplying. The hate is growing. And it's going to erupt and blow up into something that's going to wreak havoc and destruction all around. But then look what happens next. As you kind of keep looking down into the story, 
of Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers, in verse 19, they see Joseph approaching them. And in verse 19, the text says that the brothers say, here comes this dreamer. You can almost hear the disdain and the disgust in their, in their, in their voice. Here comes this dreamer. And then what happens from there? Verse 24 says, they threw him into a pit. Their hate has multiplied. Their hate has grown to this, this, this point where they want nothing to do with Joseph. Initially, before they throw him into a pit, they actually want to have a plan to kill Joseph. And one of the older brothers says, no, no hold on, we, we can't do that. Let's not go that far. Let's just kind of basically sell him into slavery and just leave him to, you know, rot basically in a pit. Let's not directly kill him. Let's just, you know, throw him into a pit. That'll be, you know, one step away from, like, not so grotesque. And you just have to step back and wonder. Right? And I get it. The story of Joseph, it's a fairly familiar story, right? Maybe you've seen the movie or seen one too many flannel graphs of it. But it's a familiar story. But just step back for a moment right now. And imagine being in this sort of relational family dynamic. Where the hate and the disgust and the jealousy and the pain and the sin from generations past has not really been fully dealt with. And it's been perpetuated. It's been essentially retweeting itself in the current generation. How are we to think about this? How are we to respond in all this? And here's the thing. Not only does Joseph or does Jacob perpetuate the favoritism to Joseph, his favorite son, the other brothers, they're also perpetuating some of the sins from their father, Jacob. See, Jacob, originally his name means deceiver. And you read the story of Jacob. This past week, Tony and I did a cutting room floor episode on Jacob and Esau. We could talk in more detail about their kind of growing up together and their kind of sibling relationship growing up. But Jacob growing up, his name means deceiver. And what we find by the end of Genesis 37 is that the brothers play a deceptive role as well. See, after they throw Joseph into the pit, they take Joseph's kind of richly ornamented robe, that multicolored robe, and they dip it in some animal blood. And they bring it back to their father Jacob to kind of deceive their father. And to kind of trick their father, to let their father Jacob know, you know what? Something terrible has happened to Joseph. And we don't know what, what, what caused it. We don't know what, what that was. And they seem to be perpetuating that same deception that Jacob did himself. Look with me what the text says. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph, without doubt, is, is torn to pieces. And notice what Jacob does. He tears his own robe. Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, now I shall go down to Sheol. That can be translated to the grave. To my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Genesis 37 ends in a complete downer. It's, it's depressing. There's brokenness all over. The, the messiness of this family is just off the charts. And see, the sin and brokenness that was never fully dealt with a generation or two ago is manifesting itself again in the present. Joseph is more or less a punk and he's arrogant. He has no emotional intelligence. 
Jacob continues the sin of his father by perpetuating the favoritism. We just talked about that. And the brothers themselves are perpetuating the deceit of their father, Jacob. Now, in case you've forgotten, this is the family of Abraham that God said in Genesis chapter 12 that they were going to be chosen to be a blessing to the world. This is the family that God is saying, through you, I'm going to bring redemption and forgiveness and salvation to the whole world. And look how messed up these people are. Look how messy this family is. And the beautiful thing is, not to excuse at all their behavior, not to excuse at all their choices. It is evil. The choices that the brothers make is evil, full stop. And at the same time, God's work is going to continue through this broken, messy family. God's work is going to be faithful to the end, even through the brokenness and the mess of this family. But what about for us today? What about for our sort of lives today? There's something I think really important that for us Westerners is really hard to hear in light of this Joseph story. You know what it is? That sin and grace, healthy and unhealthy habits, are often a a byproduct of not just your own individual choices, but often the closest relationships around us. See, we have kind of this mantra or this idea in our culture that I'm a self-made person. It's all about what I do. It's all about my own individual choices and my own sort of individuality. And the thing is, while not to, again, excuse the individual choices that these brothers are making or that anyone in the story is making, and not to dismiss the importance of individual responsibility and all, anything individual choice or anything like that, but at the same time, we are a product as human beings of the stories and the people that are often closest to us. That the choices that we make, the actions that we partake in, have often been influenced by our closest family members, our closest friends, and our closest relationships. The thing is, you are not a self-made person. This doesn't mean, again, that individual choices don't matter. But here's the thing. It's often within the context of relationship, it's often within the context of even family, that our flaws and our sins are often exposed. Have you noticed that? That's often within close relational connection that we begin to, that that our sins and our brokenness begin to show themselves. But here's the thing as well. As painful and as hard and difficult that relationships can be, as painful and and as agonizing sometimes that these relationships can often play themselves out, here's the thing that we often don't experience healing apart from relationships. That it's often through even messy relationships that we experience healing and growth and transformation. See, your flaws did not happen by individual action alone. They happen through both a combination of your choices and often the relationships that have been a part of your life, for good and for bad. And you know how this often, I think, plays out, at least for me, when I think about this? Oftentimes I can be seeing someone do something or say something or act a certain way. And sometimes in my, in my own mind, I might kind of judge that person as, like, how can you act like that? How can you behave in that sort of way? And it's in that moment that I need to be reminded that, you know what? 
that again, perhaps that individual action, you're responsible for it. It's, it's, there's, it's evil, it's wrong, it's sinful. And at the same time, that I think as I recognize in light of the story of Joseph, that perhaps there's a story behind the story. Perhaps there were circumstances prior that led to this person behaving and acting a certain way. And it perhaps hopefully generates a sense of compassion for others. Let me put it to you like this. You know, I grew up with amazing parents. Love them to death. They love Jesus. I've been at the same church for decades. And I had the privilege of growing up in a, in a really healthy home. Now, my parents were not perfect, but it's really hard for me, honestly, to think of ways that my parents, you know, failed me at any point. I really am grateful for my, my, my childhood. And at the same time, though, I had the opportunity before coming here to work at a local nonprofit here on the peninsula where we were dealing with and working with people that were often coming from very broken relational families and upbringings that led to high drug use, high crime rates. And in those interactions, I began to realize that, you know what, who am I to say that I'm a better person than any of these other people? Their upbringing, their past was a million times more difficult. And perhaps it did contribute to who they are today. And, and God is working in them and God is in bringing healing and all of that. But I just bring that up to say, when we look at the story of Joseph and see how the impact of the, of the generational sin and the family sin is playing itself out, perhaps when we look at our own lives and our own relationships and the people we interact with today, perhaps there's a level of compassion that can arise and, and, and understanding that perhaps the reason people are doing things is perhaps there's a story behind the story. And that perhaps there's often more beneath the surface. That God is still doing a work in people's lives. And that God is doing a work in our own relationships and lives. And to really kind of drive this home, I want to keep coming back to this. That it's often through relational, relational relationships that God wants to bring healing. As messy as relationships can be, it's often through relationships and through family that God wants to bring healing. Again, we live in this very individualistic culture that I can do it by myself. I can be whoever I want to be. But may I suggest, friends, that this is why Lone Ranger Christianity, and I love Jesus but I don't really want to participate in a church, is a flat-out oxymoron. It doesn't work. It doesn't lead to the relational growth and health and vitality that God has for us. That it is vital that, yes, in the mess, in the difficulty, that we still commit to family and relationships. That we still commit to saying, you know what, I'm in this for a long haul. That we defy the individualism of our culture by saying yes to Jesus and his church. That we surrender, as one writer recently said, we surrender our autonomy so that we might have loving relationships with one another. And that we recognize that we can't have both our autonomy, I do what I want, and deep committed relationship. There's a level of surrender to our preferences, surrender to our autonomy, surrender to what I want so that we might have something greater, deeper relational connection and growth and healing. Which leads me to my second point. If God is going to work through the mess, if God is going to work through all the messiness that we see in the Joseph story of the relational dynamics and the relational dynamics even in our lives, the second thing I also want to talk about is that God's work is often quieter. What do I mean? Well, if you look at Genesis 37, if I was kind of doing this like maybe in a class setting, I might have the text printed out. And I might ask you to, to highlight all the times that God is mentioned in Genesis 37. And you know how many times you'll find the word God or a reference to God in Genesis 37? 
Zero. Not one time is God mentioned in all of Genesis 37. And on one level, you might think, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this evil and this, this mess and all this relational dysfunction? Where is God in any of this? Well, on one level, he seems to be absent, but on another deeper level, he's there present all along. That God is working even through those moments where it seems like God is nowhere to be found on the page. God is working in those moments where it seems like heaven is silent. Imagine Joseph being in the pit. In fact, let's take a look at the text here, verse, verse 23. So when, the, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And he took him, and they took him, and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. If you go on to verse 25, the brothers, the text says, they sit down and they have a meal. Like how disgusting is that? And if you're Joseph in the pit, again, try to empathize. Try to place yourself in this moment. What are you thinking in this moment? You're the one who apparently you think you have this vision, this dream from God perhaps. That God is going to make you this ruler. And it seems like, okay, God's at work in my life. God's speaking to me. It feels like God is close to me. And this is what happens? I'm betrayed by the ones who love me, supposedly? What would your prayers be like if you were stuck in that moment? What's interesting is if you go through the book of Psalms, there's a, a number of Psalms that talk about, God, would you deliver me from the pit? And that detail of Joseph being in a pit is very important. I wonder if those psalms are often kind of looking back at the Joseph story. Kind of giving us a, a, a picture, if you will. What is it like to pray when we are in the pit? This isn't the last time Joseph is going to be found in a pit. A few chapters later, the text says that Joseph's thrown into an Egyptian prison. But the text describes that prison as a pit. Same word. Joseph is in a pit. There's no mention of God in the text. What do you do? How do you respond? God, where are you in all this? Now, there's a very kind of semi-important detail where all that gives us a clue as to where this is taking place. There's a city that this is all happening in. And it's the city of Dothan, if you look in Genesis 37. You might be, okay, why am I being told this information? What's so important about Dothan? Well... The only other time that this city is mentioned in all of the, all the scriptures is in 2 Kings chapter 6. Let me just kind of do a quick detour. 2 Kings chapter 6, quick Cliff Notes version, and we'll come back to Genesis 37, okay? So 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha the prophet, centuries later, is in a moment where he, him and, and some other people are surrounded by an enemy army in the city of Dothan, right? And so they're at this point where, God, we need your deliverance. The enemy is at the front gate, if you will. And we need deliverance. So Elisha cries out. He prays to God. And boom, chariots of fire and deliverance happens. And I'm like, yeah, that's how prayer is supposed to work. Right? I cry out. Boom. God answers. Chariots of fire and I am set free. That's the only other time Dothan's mentioned in the Bible. And you, the readers, you're kind of reading through the Old Testament. You go, you know what? If I had my pick, I would take the second one, right? That's how I want my prayer life to be. That's how I want God to deliver me from. But no, no, no. Here's the thing. Do we believe that God is just as much at work when the chariots of fire and deliverance happens as he is in Genesis 37 when it seems silent? Do we believe that God is still present with Joseph? That God still is doing a much greater and deeper work through Joseph and his family even though heaven seems silent back in Genesis 37? And here's the thing that I want to submit to you this morning. 
that God's perfect loving presence is perfectly compatible with those moments where we might feel like heaven is silent. That no one seems to be answering. Because as we continue on through this story, we're going to see that God truly is at work in Joseph's life. That God truly is working a plan that Joseph probably can't see at this moment. But we're going to get to that. Which leads me to my third point, longer. God's work often takes longer. What do I mean? Well, the story of Joseph actually it starts in Genesis 37, but it doesn't actually end until Genesis 50, the last chapter of the book of Genesis. So from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, 14 chapters are pretty much dedicated to Joseph and his family in this whole scenario. And, you know, one thing I would just kind of as a quick side note, encourage you this week if you can, to pick up your Bible and read the, the whole story in its entirety, Genesis 37 through 50. And just notice kind of the different pieces. We're going to be talking about Joseph again next week. But if you can, I think it would really help for next week as well. Go ahead and read through Genesis 37 through 50 if you can this week. It really doesn't take all that long to do. But sometimes that can be a little deceptive. Because we think, oh, that took me like, I don't know, 20, maybe 30 minutes to read through some of those chapters. And we forget that decades of time passed from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. We're given a detail in the beginning of Genesis 37 of how old Joseph is. He's 17 years old. So all this happens when he's at the very end of his teenage years. But do you know what? Jacob, or sorry, Joseph is eventually going to get sold into slavery in Egypt. There's a whole thing there. We'll talk a little bit more next week. But by the time Joseph gets reunited with his father, guess how old Joseph is? He's 39. 22 years pass. Can you imagine 22 years of not seeing your family? 22 years of wondering, God, where are you? Am I ever going to see my loved ones again? 22 years of, God, what are you doing? 22 years of just at a, perhaps at a complete loss, wondering, God, where are you in all of this? And you know what? In those 22 years, Joseph faces even more difficulty. Joseph, he's, like I mentioned, he actually eventually gets brought into Egypt. And he gets like this one kind of reprieve where he's given like a semi-promotion, if you will. And he's kind of put in, the, in, in charge of the house of Potiphar, one of the noble officials in Egypt. But mo just right after that, in Genesis 39, after he's kind of given this promotion, he's in this spot where he is framed for essentially sleeping with his boss's wife, Potiphar's wife. That's Genesis 39. And Joseph then, like I mentioned earlier, gets thrown back into prison, gets thrown back into a pit. And you begin to wonder, God, where are you in all this? What's taking so long for your purposes to develop? What's taking so long for your plan to come to pass? Is this all part of what you, you want, God? But in Genesis 39, we're given this really important detail. At two points, both at the very beginning of Genesis 39 and at the very end, the text says at two points in the beginning and two points at the end that God was with Joseph. It's almost like the, the narrator, the author, wants us to see that surrounding Joseph's predicament, that surrounding the difficulty, is God's presence, both in the front and on the end. And as the story of Joseph continues, as we see that Joseph is, is stuck in prison, he gets forgotten about in prison, he eventually, we begin to see God's purposes at work, where eventually he's actually released from prison, given this really powerful position in the land of Egypt, basically the most powerful man in the world, second only to Pharaoh. And Joseph, because of the way he interprets dreams, is able to interpret and, and foresee a day when there would be seven years of abundance throughout the land. 
Seven years where the agriculture and the crops would lead to plentiful harvest, followed by seven years of famine. We'll talk more about that next week. But just for our purposes today, I don't want to give it all away, but for our purposes today, to see that as the story of Joseph continues, we see that God was raising Joseph up. God was bringing Joseph to this place where he would be in this position of power and authority so that he would be able to administer and save the, the, the land from the famine. And in, in the process of that, in the process of there being this famine and this drought, Joseph's own family receives benefit. Joseph's own, own family in chapters to follow would come to this place of them being hungry, of them being in a place of starvation. And Joseph has been lifted up to this position so that he would be able to then bless his family, even though that they are the ones that have hurt him. Even though they are the ones that have caused him so much harm. To the point where Joseph will say in Genesis 45.5 to his brothers, no, God sent me here. God sent me here, Genesis 45.5. Can you imagine saying that? After all of the, the, the vile and the evil that Joseph himself faced in Genesis 37, to come to a place by the end of Genesis 45 and to say, you know what, no, no, don't worry, don't fear. God sent me here. That for Joseph, he has in his brain this, this mindset, no, that God was and is at work even in this long season, even in this season of, of wondering and dryness. And God, where are you in all of this? That Joseph comes to a place where he believes, no, God was at work. So God is at work in the mess, in the quiet, and in those long seasons, messier, quieter, longer. It's a really poor Nike ad, but may I suggest that this is, I think, how God is still wanting to show us that he is at work. And I don't know about you this morning, how you come in. Where you, where you perhaps find yourself relating to this. Perhaps it's some of the, the messiness and the relational dynamic. Of God, are you really at work in the mess here? Are you really present in these, in these moments? Like, What's the purpose of all this? Or it's perhaps you, you find yourself in a season where it seems like heaven is silent. And it seems like the prayers aren't being answered at all. And there's no response. And it's hard to hear God's voice. Or perhaps you're in a season where it just seems like this long, grueling process. And God, when are you ever going to bring answers? When are you ever going to bring deliverance? And may I suggest that as we look at and see the story of Joseph, that this story not only shows us that how God is at work in the mess and in the quiet and in these long seasons, but this story of Joseph points us forward to the person of Jesus. That the story of Joseph shows us that Jesus himself, he is the truly righteous sufferer. Joseph, or Jesus, like Joseph, is betrayed by his closest brothers and friends. Joseph, like, or Jesus, like Joseph, is thrown into a pit of sorts. And that Jesus, he is faithful in the midst of temptation just like Joseph was. And Joseph, or Jesus is risen, or is given this position of authority and power, yet he had to go through a season of humiliation and suffering. As we think about the story of, of Joseph, may it be a reminder ultimately to the faithfulness of Jesus. That Jesus has been faithful through his own suffering, his own pain, his own agony. And so that he is also faithful to us in our mess, in our quiet, in our brokenness. And for perhaps 
as we think about the week ahead, and we think about our sort of everyday life, how this perhaps lands for us, you know, there's one thing I think really stands out. And for me, as I was thinking about this, kind of praying through this, just one invitation for you for the week ahead is that you would simply take time to process this week. It's a, it's a, it's a heavy story, for sure. There's a lot of difficulty in this story. But perhaps as you think about this story in connection to your life, that you would take just a few moments this week to process, God, where are you speaking to me? Where are you inviting me along in this journey? One of the things that was helpful for me this week is that I was kind of thinking about this. And I was up in my office on Thursday, kind of, kind of working through the last little details of this, this message. And a friend had texted me and was wanting to, like, you know, borrow a book that I had. And it was somewhere in my office. And I was trying to figure out where it was. And you know, my books are not all that organized up there. And I came across, as I was trying to search for this book, one of my old journals that I hadn't really looked at in a number, really a couple years, actually. And it was the journal that I was using when we first came to Wellspring. And I hadn't I looked at it for, you know, at least, you know, we came to Wellspring, you know, at the end of 2018, fall of 2018. And so I hadn't really looked at it probably since then. And kind of reading some of the stuff that I was writing, because if you kind of know our story, we, we came to Wellspring, and honestly, the first few Sundays, I did not want to be here, to be completely honest. We had just come out of a season of leading a church plant, and we had to close it down. And we were in a kind of a season of wondering, God, where are you? Where are you leading in all of this? You know, what was our future going to be like? We had no idea. And coming to Wellspring, which was essentially a church plant, almost basically the same timeline as our church plant was before us coming here, and seeing the, the thriving and the, the growth, and it just created all these feelings of jealousy and like, God, why weren't you doing that for us? And just seeing, though, like, as the stuff I was writing and hearing Tony's teaching and seeing and meeting people, that God was at work in those moments. God was at work in that season a few years ago. And it was this reminder, as I was thinking about the story of Joseph, that sometimes it's so easy to forget God's past faithfulness in those messy, quiet, long seasons. And I was just given this gift kind of on accident because a friend, not an accident, but I think God was, uh, was working of a reminder that God is faithful in these messy, quiet, long seasons. All because of a friend's random text about trying to find some book. And I say that because as we think about the story of Joseph, and don't worry, we're going to get to the, 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 the wonderful reconciliation, the joyful part at the end next week. But I think for this week it is important to kind of sit with a little bit of, the, of, the, of this mess, if you will. And to take some time to process this week. Maybe you're out of a season where you kind of look back and you, you can easily see God's faithfulness. You can easily see how God has been at work over the past, you know, whatever time frame. Or maybe you're stuck right in the middle. And it's difficult and it's hard and it's grueling. And I would just invite you to process that with God this week. To really slow down and take time. See, we live in a culture that constantly wants our attention and the busyness and the fast pace is wreaking havoc on our souls. And I, my, my friends, I want to just challenge you to really slow down this week and to not allow just the, the barrage of kind of things seeking our attention to take you away from that intimacy that God wants to have with you. That I believe for each one of us here this morning and for those listening online, that God wants to speak to you through this story. That God has a word of comfort and hope and of encouragement for you. If you would take the time to sit down and listen to what God has to say. And again, to end our time, I want to invite the worship team to come up. 
to end and remind us again that this story ultimately is pointing us to Jesus. This story ultimately is about how Jesus, through his suffering, is faithful to us. That Jesus, through his season of agony and of pain and of crying out, God, if there's any other way, take this cup. If there's any other way, can we do this someplace else? But no, Jesus is the one who enters into our brokenness, enters into our pain, enters into the depths and despair of our suffering so that we might be drawn to him. Despite your brokenness, despite my brokenness, we have a Savior who is present with us, a Savior who loves us. I invite you to stand with me as we, as we pray. God, this morning, we ask that you would remind us again of your loving kindness. God, that you would help us to see just how truly wonderful you are to us. That God, that you would help us to know that in these seasons where it's messy and it's difficult, God, that you are faithful to us, that perhaps we can't see it yet, but God, that we may in time see your purposes, see your good plan at work. God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you, God, for your word to us. And so, God, wherever we might find ourselves this morning, God, I pray that you would meet each person here today. God, that your presence would be not just a, a theological idea, but, God, it would be something that we experience and know in a deep, deep, intimate way today. So, God, draw near as we seek you this morning. We ask for more of you in our lives. And for those of us who are suffering for those of us who are in pain, God, would you especially reveal and meet with us today. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name.